Dad, are you looking at American Next Express again? Well, yeah, of course I'm looking at Maritime Knife Supply again. Why wouldn't I? They've got all the best supplies for knife makers and blacksmiths, and they've got fast shipping all across North America, and I can use the code FSCKILN to save $100 on an even heat or a Paragon kiln. Why wouldn't I look at Maritime Knife Supply? You should too! Oh, good day. Good day, and welcome to another Forge Side Chat, a podcast about blacksmithing, bladesmithing, and everything in between, with a heavy focus on talent in the Great White North. But today, we're heading south once again, and I'm hitting up somebody a little on the younger side. This is Ethan Koch. Did I say that right? Uh, it's Cook. Cook. Jeez. <laughs> I would have never guessed that based off the spelling. No one would ever have guessed. I should have mentioned it. Yeah. We only just, you know, talked for like five minutes before we started. Thanks, man. You left me hanging on that. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. Ethan's 22. He's in the Springfield, Missouri area. He's been doing this since he was 13 years old. So about nine years now. And he started his business right out of high school, which is super freaking cool. Props to you on that, Ethan, man. Welcome to the show. How you doing, bud? Uh, doing pretty good. Pretty tired. <laughs> been been busy. Been uh, busy week or busy summer. Yes, it has. Uh, it's started doing mixing in some more in person markets in addition to online stuff because my brother in law likes to do that, and uh, my sister's wife would go with him, but they had a kid, so she hasn't able to go, and so she has asked me if I want to come and bring my stuff. So it's like you know all the normal stuff of product and content and shipping. And then also having stuff on hand and spending all, you know, a day a week getting up at five and working all day and such. But Oh, fun. That sounds like uh, fun. It's been productive. <laughs> it's forced me to be a little more disciplined, so that's good. Amen. And I think discipline is key when it comes to business, dude. I've, uh, if I've learned anything, I've been following a bunch of business guys, entrepreneur, like, uh, what is it, self-help kind of guys or whatever, like Tom mm-hmm. Bilyeu. Uh, Robert Green, these all these guys. It's all about discipline, man. Making sure that yeah. you follow your one hundred percent rule book, and if you're not following it, you just what what ends up happening. You go off track, and business is all about staying on track. If you're not, then it all falls apart, right? That's absolutely right. Uh, especially since there's so many different disciplines that I never ever considered before I started a business uh, that I would have to learn. So like when I was little, I was like, oh, you know, I want to be a blacksmith and then I'll never have to use a computer in my life. <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> and I don't have any natural talent at that, but I have slowly gotten better just because I have made myself do that. And I've learned that, yeah, if you're disciplined, uh, you'll you'll find success if you commit yourself to doing those things. Yeah, man. So it's been about four years now you've been in business for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And you figured at the beginning of this probably right quick that you needed to figure out computers and and internet and sales strategies and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So like the first year, I just kind of bumbled along in a lot of that stuff. Uh, And then there was about two years between there where I really didn't, I wasn't able to be in my shop a lot. I had a big construction project that I had to help with going on. And that was really good. (laughs) Uh, 
but I really feel like I've only been uh, had my head seriously in it for like the last year and a half. So probably doesn't look like four years of growth, and <laughs> that's why. But uh, I've forgotten what your original question was. Now I got carried on. No, no. I actually, to be honest, they kind of left a little left out open ended there. I didn't really quite shoot okay. you a direct question, and you took it the right the right the right way, man. That's exactly where I was going with this. Is like so. During that first year that you were, you know, obviously gung-ho, I'm going to blacksmith, make all these items, I'm going to start selling them, came to realize that's not necessarily how this works, right? Yeah. So I put, like, all of my time into making stuff. And then, like, if I thought about it, you know, like, you know, what can I do to sell stuff? Turns out that's terrible business strategy. <laughs> uh, just terrible. Uh, so when I came back into it after that, uh, break, it was like, okay, we clearly need to make some changes here. Uh, but yeah, I was definitely gun ho on making stuff and I did not, not yet realize what that was going to take. Yeah. But that I'm sure that had you come in with the knowledge on how to sell all these things, were you already developed in your skill set enough that you would have just been able to jump into making things and selling? Looking back, no. Uh, this might ruffle a lot of people's feathers, but uh, I, I think it's great that everyone has a voice on social media. But if I were to give my younger self advice, it would be to not start selling stuff yet. <laughs> Yes, sir. Uh, partially just because that stuff is attached to your brand in a way. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely don't think that I had the skills to call myself a professional. And at this point, I, you know, I'm still hesitant to say that because there's lots of people better than me. But back then, it was like, yeah, I probably could have <laughs> worked up some more skill before I jumped into that. Uh, I I feel very similar in fashion to that uh, thought process, man, because, um, and you know, you hear people talk about imposter syndrome and stuff. And I think maybe Mm -hmm. what we're talking about is somewhat the, is it the opposite of imposter syndrome that we're in a way? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, uh, you know, you went into it gung ho that you could sell things or whatever, only to look back and realize like, wait a minute. I, I I kind of maybe should have stepped back a little bit, but do you think you would have still been successful had you gone forward with the skill set you had at that time? Or at, at what point do you think it was right for you to say, okay, now I've got the skill set? Did you have to take courses and stuff, or was it all self taught? I'm asking you a million questions at once. I'm sorry. <laughs> um. When would I say that it was right? That's a that's a tricky question. I know I don't think at the time that I would have known, but I could probably look back through photos now and I could point at a photo and I'm like, you know, I think at that time my work was clean enough uh, that I would, you know, I would feel okay selling it. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, that, that is tough to say. And like I said, I never would have seen that going forward. Uh, I took lessons for about three years when I was in high school. 
and then one day my teacher it was an older gentleman. His name is John Schaff. Uh, he is a great mentor. I love him to death. We still hang out. Um, and, but one day he's just like, yeah, I have nothing left to teach you. And then I worked for a guy who made garden tools uh, for a year or two while I was in school. And I knew I, I learned a lot from him. I knew I didn't want to make garden tools. <laughs> uh, but that was kind of the extent of the like in-person teaching. Uh, and I pick stuff up from people, you know, you see online. Uh, I have some of Mark Asprey's books, which are very inspiring. Lovely. Yeah, man. Uh, I can't say I have done all the projects, but even just like flipping through, I have this one on traditional joinery, which I don't get to do too much now, but I love uh, looking at and doing, but just flipping through there, I feel like I learn a lot Mm -hmm. just like looking at pictures and reading. And it's like, wow, I always wondered how that might be done. And it's just, you know, sometimes it just takes a paragraph to help you understand something. I've noticed you use some really nice joinery in your work, actually, dude. And, you know, Thank you. you're welcome. And it's something that I've been kind of really surprised by is your quality of work. No offense, but being 22, <laughs> dude, you put out really good quality work. And on your Instagram, there is some awesome stuff. What's your Instagram again? Blazing... Blazing Ember Forge. Thank you. Thank you. Is, it, is there underscores in there? Blazing underscore Ember? Uh, there's not. It's all one word. And I think that's the best I've ever said that out loud. It's kind of funny. Uh, that was the name, the only one of all the ones people suggested that I liked. And I was like, I'm going to do that. And then I don't know if it's just because I'm self-conscious about it or what, but I always have to repronounce it for people because I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I can never like get it across to people clearly, and they're like, "What?" Oh, you definitely spit it out nice and clean there, bud. Thank you. Uh, I was thinking ahead on that. <laughs> so, uh, oh, I've got so many questions I want to ask you, but I want to kind of stick towards the business. Business has been something that's been huge on my hit list lately because I'm super interested in opening my own business as well. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of personal attachment to my questions when it comes to the podcast and I've come to realize that over the last few episodes that I've been really grilling people on business and I've been listening to a a podcast called uh, welding business owners podcast which is all about business and I'm just like oh business 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 let's talk about business how do we make money guys how do how do we make this work for us right and I mean it seems like you're figuring it out dude from the sounds of it you you know, t- telling me that you're doing this farmer's market stuff now with uh, your brother-in-law. What kind of stuff are you taking to the farmer's market? That's where I really struggle. And so you see on my Instagram lately, I've been developing a couple different things that are relatively inexpensive because at that crowd, like I've done art fairs and stuff, but as far as like smaller markets and stuff, you really want to produce work that is in an impulse buy range, Mm. Uh, which really that just depends on where you're at. Uh, And obviously I don't know about Canadian. (laughs) So if I spit out a dollar, it wouldn't mean much where we are. That's probably around like 15 to $30. We're like the pace compared Uh, to you guys. (laughs) Oh, well that depends. It got pretty close there a while back. Yeah. Um, So, and I do really struggle with that. And so I don't like it. I would do better business there if I had my booth filled out with that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, but I just don't. 
it takes time to develop those things and build a stock. And those aren't necessarily the things that I want to be making all the time. Yeah. So what I've found is I have, you know, some bigger pieces uh, that I have on hand that move slower, that kind of catch people's eye and draw them in. And then there's other stuff that your average person, you know, could be like, wow, that's cool. And they can walk away with something. Uh, and as I guess it probably depends uh, here, even around Springfield, it's pretty rural. Uh, I think that probably affects the kind of items that you would bring. Yeah, for sure. It definitely does. If you're in a larger uh, urban setting, you can get away with kind of uh, schmancy little gadgets and stuff like that, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Out on the farm, people want stuff they can use. Yep. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Uh, not that I want to you know, talk about everyone that comes into our booth. <laughs> but a lot of people you know, point to like a piece of art and they're just like, what do you do with that? Like, it's art. You look at it. <laughs> like, what do you do with the painting in your house? But, oh, it's so, it's, it's funny you bring that up because this is a battle that I've fought <laughs> with myself for a long time now. I, you, you'll see in the background behind me, I've got this one picture. We picked it up in Dominican when we were on holidays would have never mm -hmm. bought a picture like this otherwise it was like we were on dominican we wanted to bring something home that we could remember our vacation by and then on the other wall behind me you can see there's a picture there of flin flon which is my hometown and it's an aerial shot of the entire town which is just kind of cool my parents got it when they were kids and they were going to throw it out and i was like no it's a shot of flin flon i want i want to keep that for whatever reason i don't know i don't care for yeah. paintings on the walls and art pieces hanging around and stuff like that. Yet I find myself wanting to make them for some reason. And I'm like yeah. making these things and then looking at them and going like, are people really going to buy this stuff? Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> like, what, am, why am I making this? Like, like I don't know. It, and, and, and then the price range of things, you start looking at these things like, okay, so if somebody doesn't really want this, then it's not really worth anything. But then, then there's going to be that one person that really likes it. And if they see it, that it's a low price tag, they're not, they're not going to want it then. Right. They're going to want that thousand yeah. dollar price tag. So it's like, ah, how do you like not shoot yourself in the foot almost? <laughs> um, I've found that it's something that I'm really bad at, but that's just finding the right market and kind of goes back to what we were saying about when do you start a business in that you can't really run a shop on minimum wage. So from the beginning, you have to be charging, you know, obviously way more than you'd be making at McDonald's because you're running a shop and that's expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there, I think that actually might answer your earlier question of when do you know you start? It's when the quality of your work starts matching the price that you have to charge. Ah, beauty. And <laughs> you, if you can find the right people, like I try very hard, you know, we're all as creators, I think we're all self-conscious about our work. If I try hard to price mine appropriately so that I feel like I'm well imbursed for my time, and even if it's way more than I would pay, because like you say, there are those people that will pay for that. And yeah, you don't, you don't want to undersell yourself. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but it just comes down to getting your stuff in front of the right people. Mm -hmm. And as far as whether or not, you know, since you don't collect art, whether or not someone else will buy your art, we're all very different. And I think that that's a very common thing for people who make things to think. Because, I mean, I don't collect other people's art. I have one painting because I have a personal connection to that painting. Uh, I was hanging up in my parents' house when I was little. My mom was going to get rid of it. And I was like, I want that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> she, was trying, she tried to sell it. But uh, I was like, no, it's fine. <laughs> and but there are people who don't make things and it's very foreign for me to think about but you definitely find those people i sold a fire poker a while back it was one of my favorite pieces for probably 10 times what i would personally ever pay for a fire poker wow. but it's not he didn't buy it because he wanted a fire poker that costs 10 times as much you know he, because he wanted a functional piece, he bought it because it was a piece of art that he could use. Yeah. So you have to look at it a little differently in that, you know, I like making functional art. And a lot of times, you know, people will see it as a functional item and they'll be like, wow, I want that. And then they see the price tag and they say, well, but you know, I'm not willing to pay that for a fire poker. And that can kind of sting. But when you think about it, you have to realize that they're not buying a fire poker. They're buying your craftsmanship yeah. and a work of art that they can use. You know, it's almost like it's a fire poker second and it's a hundred percent functional. I'm not saying it doesn't work, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's more than the, the tangible item and people will know that it has that value if you find the right people. I, I like the way you put that, man. That's uh, gives me warm, tingly feelings all over. <laughs> uh speaking about uh pricing your stuff right and uh selling mm -hmm. items and whatnot we are sponsored by a company by the names of maritime knife supply if you have over to maritime knife supply.ca they've got a beautiful arraignment of awesome blacksmithing stuff everything you would need to make knives and we can save you $100 on even heat or Paragon Kilns if you use the code FSCKILN at checkout. You can also save 10% on grinding belts. If you buy 10 belts, you'll save 10%. That's essentially a free belt every 10 belts. It's a great deal. He ships all across Canada and the USA ultra quick. That's at maritimenicesupply.ca. How was that? It's good to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Sounds like you got a really good grasp on business, dude. Have you done like for your age, dude? Like I'm surprised, man. I really am. I don't know. Are you studying business in any sort of way? Do you have anybody giving you any sort of pointers and helping you with anything? Like where are you learning all this? Is all self-taught? Most of it at this point is self-taught and it's a lot of trial and error for me. I'm sure I there's all kinds of people recommend books and stuff and but I just don't take the time to read or listen to you. And I probably should. I'd benefit a lot from that, I'm right. sure. Yeah. Um but it's, yeah, it's just been a lot of trial and error for me personally. Uh 
I should be better about that now that, now that you mention it. <laughs> well, no, it's, I, it's essentially exactly where I was going with this question. I was like, I had a funny feeling that this is what you were going to tell me is you're, you seem like you're the type of guy that's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into this headstrong and, and figure it out yeah. a little bit of fuck around and find out kind of going on there. Eh? That's, that's how I approach. That's how I've always approached forging. And I guess that's carried over into the business side. Uh, I've found that you can, you know, I'm an overthinker, very much so, especially when it comes to serious projects. If I'm working on something and, you know, I'm 10 hours into a piece, like I'll do one step and I'm like, okay, I'm going, like I'm sweating bullets. I make a cup of coffee. I drink it. I'm like thinking, thinking like, what am I going to do? Uh <laughs> Man, I forgot where I started with that. Started rambling. Oh, you're an overthinker, and uh, I'm overthinking it now. Yeah. Well, okay, so I think you were kind of starting to divulge a little bit of what I wanted to go into. Is tell me some of the failures that you've encountered that have really set precedents for you on your on the learning stage. I think the biggest precedent that failure sets, and that kind of reminds me of where I was going, but uh, biggest thing I've learned is that I've learned more from every, every failure than any success. Mm -hmm. Because if something, it's very important to know why things happen. That's why it's hard initially to teach people forging is because you can tell them do this, but they don't know, you know why it moves a certain yeah. way. And it's important to know, or it's hard to find out why things do or do not work without seeing what happens when you don't do those things. And that's only beneficial both in forging and in business if you really stop and overthink it <laughs> and you look at, at your failures. Uh, the guy that I worked for making garden tools, uh, Homestead Iron, by the way, he makes very nice tools. Uh, he recommended to me that I take things that I make inside, especially if I failed, into the house, and I just stare at them. And he was spot on because, like, while you're doing whatever in the evening or eating food, like, if it the thing that you are, like, emotionally invested in that just flopped is sitting there, you're going to stare at it. And you're going to, like, pick it up and you turn it around and you over time thinking about it, you can be like, I know why that yeah. happened. And only with that knowledge are you equipped uh, to then go and do better. Dude, that's old man wisdom shit right there. That really is. That's like, think about it. Kids aren't doing that shit. That's old man wisdom right there, man. Sitting there staring at one of the things that broke on you and trying to understand why. <laughs> it's awesome dude i i mean it works it, it or i guess you should say it worked for me like you know you have to apply critical thinking to whatever you do if you want it to succeed uh, totally and yeah uh, i'm so uh, being a parent now for seven years um one of the things that i've really gravitated towards is understanding how people work why people do the things they do and i think that now that I'm on that page with that, I, I'm kind of wishing I would have been 
way sooner. I think understanding why people do the things they do and how they do the things they do is beyond critical to our success as a, as a human being. If you don't pay attention to and business too it's essential to business if you don't understand why people do the things they do then you're not going to have a proper grasp on business i don't think i mean i could be wrong it's my that's my personal thought right but well i mean business essentially comes down to marketing because if people don't know what you're doing if they don't know that you sell something they're not going to buy it and if they don't know why they would want it they're not going to buy it. So now I've heard in that regard, and I'm pretty terrible at this because I just like making things that look cool. But <laughs> lots of people have said, you know, it's about understanding your client's need. Uh, and if you don't understand, you know, what they want, you can't provide the solution mm-hmm. for them. So understanding people's needs for your marketing purposes what do you believe that your do you believe that every blacksmith has a different need that they're meeting versus one another essentially even though we can almost create the identical items i think that since nothing that you know, going to blow my whole business here, but since nothing that we make is necessary, <laughs> you know, there are like cheaper alternatives to anything to having something handmade. Uh, I think that the need that you're meeting is for that handmade item. And so it can shift a little bit in that, in that it can be more about a personal connection, but it can also be about someone's like stylistic needs. Uh, in that if someone wants a piece of art that's made out of metal, you know, I've had people come up and say, you know, so-and-so is, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Let me think about this. <laughs> uh, but I've had people come and say that they want to use me because of how my work looks compared to what some of the competition in Southeast Missouri might be. Yeah, no, for sure. That's fair. Uh, which fair is enough. not a knock on any of them. No, It's not saying that mine is better. It's saying that it meets their vision. Personal preference. Uh, they say, you know, yeah, your your product meets my understanding of what yeah. I want. They they feel your work, if you may. Yeah. Yep. So there's also the other something else that you brought up just now too is the fact that you know our work isn't necessarily needed, but on a on one hand i think you could look at blacksmithing business uh even on a small scale as producing an item that's necessary because even though it's handmade there's people that would prefer to have that handmade item versus a factory made item and for good reasons factory made items have their issues that come along with them as well right versus Yes, they do. <laughs> and, and that's become very prevalent to us in today's society that all these factory yeah. made, and this is something that's been talked about quite a bit in the last year or so is the, the fourth industrial revolution is upon us and that people like yourself and myself that are working from home, producing items out of our garage 
are part of this fourth industrial revolution that are helping bringing bringing manufacturing back to america you know throughout the 80s mm-hmm. we gave it all up to to china uh, not necessarily just china but a lot overseas per se mm-hmm. um it just yeah. prof, profit margins right we saw higher profit margins yep. And only to come to realize that we were essentially giving those businesses away by giving them the secrets yeah. on how all this stuff is made. They we gave that all away. And I mean, as a blacksmith, I mean, in, in our in our small community, that's what we we don't hold back secrets for the most part. We're pretty open with each other on teaching each other stuff. But when it comes to business. And actually giving your business away. What were we thinking? Like, this is, ah, oh, man. Uh, how hard would it have been I... for somebody to just be like, okay, thank you. I don't need you anymore. I'm just going to start selling all your items. And guess what happened? That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty pretty dumb because, you know, you have a a nation of buyers now. And the only big sellers are having the actual work done that you know makes profit done elsewhere it's uh it's pretty odd and i let me see i think as far as you know saying that handmade stuff is necessary uh to to some people i i think a couple things on that one is that uh we're a throwaway society and I think that's really starting to disgust. Sorry to change, man. Yeah. And I mean, that's even, it's not, it, nowadays it's not even like, oh, you know, toys and paper plates and whatever. It's like furniture is throwaway furniture. Yeah, yeah. It falls apart in a year. And when you're done with it, you just chuck it outside or you put it on the yard and with a free sign. Because <laughs> it's not, it's not worth anything at that yeah. point. Uh, and then people start realizing, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't support these people that, you know, is it's like we put all these standards on our uh, manufacturing to the point that it's cheaper to have it done elsewhere and just let them do whatever they want. I think people are kind of now like, hmm, <laughs> you know, it's maybe we shouldn't be uh, supporting maybe that. Maybe we should part of that because it's not and maybe we shouldn't be so cheap is the other thing right like okay wait a minute i understand the value of buying something that's going to last 50 years versus buying something that's only going to last 10 years there's you know buying a a fire poker that was quickly welded up on assembly line somewhere in china versus one that was handmade by somebody putting care into it and making artistic on top of that I mean, I don't know. I I think it's uh to me anyways, I see the value in that now that I'm older. When I was in my younger generation, you know, twenty years old, I I didn't see the value in that. I didn't understand that because I was very much part of that throwaway society of just, you know, whatever, right? It didn't it didn't matter to me. But as I've got grown older, even before I had a kid, I, my eyes became open to that. Like, wait a minute, what's what's going on in this world really with all the, the, the way manufacturing's working, everything seems to be kind of going to shit. And, <laughs> you know, me and you doing artistic stuff might not be quite the, 
the pinnacle of industrial revolution, right? <laughs> Far from it. Yeah. But those guys like Brian Hose, who's gone and bought himself a freaking um, milling machine, a CNC milling machine for his garage or for his shop, yeah. and he's now producing like awesome stuff. He's got his forge. He's got his two by seventy twos. He just started making these awesome little. Uh, hooks for belts for grinding belts and just little, little something small and simple like that now is it handmade because it's <laughs> you're gonna right? go there it's small huh? scale but he, it was at, at one point he was the one that handmade that developed that product himself and now he's producing it on a cnc machine right so Man, you're gonna get me in trouble here. Uh, there's like everyone asks that about CNC machines, and some people even ask that about hand, uh, power tools. You know, like you know, is it handmade anymore? And I think to a certain degree, yes, because a single person designed and produced it. Now, the tool that they used to produce it may have done the manufacturing, but they had their own human input it was their idea they took an idea from a thought in their head to a physical item now on the other hand that doesn't usually there are exceptions but it doesn't necessarily blow my mind like you know with uh it's kind of the same way with uh digital art and the access we have to that through the internet where you see so much you know, high quality digital art that's nice that it just doesn't really impress you. But if one person comes along and they're like, I made this oil painting and it looks that nice, you're like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so is it still, you know, made by an individual? Yes. I'm not usually, you know, like blown away by, by talent necessarily. People can write me hate comments for that if they want. <laughs> uh, Controversy is good, man. Makes us think a little bit. Keeps us on our toes. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that, though? Um, you know what, man? I've been torn back and forth on that one because yeah. at one point I was like, no, it's got to be your, your hands on it that made that specific item. That's That makes it handmade, right? Yeah, you can use power tools and stuff like that, but your hands have to be doing the work. If your hands aren't doing the work on that specific item, then that specific item isn't handmade. And, you know, with that thought going forward, then, you know, for me to say that what Brian House is doing is being handmade with the, the 3D printed stuff or whatever, at this point, it's no longer handmade. He's put it into production, right? He's doing production runs of it. At one yeah. time, it was that, handmade, that's though, right? So <laughs> even even his grinder, at one time, his grinder was a handmade 2x72 grinding station that he put into production. He developed this thing by hand and has now put it into production. And that's that's essentially what this whole fourth industrial revolution is about, is guys like that that are learning these skills on how to manufacture at home. And even though it might just be, it might not be manufacturing what you're doing when it comes to art, 
there are manufacturing aspects to it, right? Like you have to, you, you have to consider mm-hmm. how manufacturing works in order to make a business of what we do when it comes to art, right? Yeah. Yep. Do you follow anything like lean manufacturing or 5S or anything like that with your shop? No, I have no clue what you're talking about. Sorry. <laughs> no well, um, I mean, okay, lean manufacturing. Somebody asked me this in an interview when I was, oh, geez, how old would have I been? I think I was 22, 20, no, 24. I was 24 years old. And I got asked how. Well, I'm ahead of the curve learning this then. There you go. <laughs> I got asked what lean manufacturing was. And I took a stab in the dark and I was like, well, it's understanding how to break down manufacturing to be as simple and cost effective as possible. And that's essentially what lean manufacturing is, is breaking manufacturing down to be as simple and cost effective as possible. Cost effective is, well, I mean, manufacturing what you want in manufacturing and that's you know essentially why we got to where we got to with manufacturing not realizing that well wait a minute that level of cost effectiveness isn't it it's not manufacturing anymore when you've given it to somebody else (laughs) yeah it's cost effective thinking Uh, (laughs) i mean like okay so like for you and me and i've seen this with other artists for example um this gentleman that I that I know here in Winnipeg was giving me the the DL on how he does handrails because he foresees me making the same mistake he made on handmaking all of the the accents that go on it and he takes takes my hand yeah. and brings me into his back room and shows me buckets I mean buckets filled with every bucket had a different style of leaf in it or um vine vine accents and stuff like that for making railings and i was just like dude seriously he's like yeah you just order all this stuff online it's cheap comes from china they're all identical so it's easy to work with and i'm like well right there you just fucking nailed the put the nail in the coffin for me they're all identical that's what i don't want but then why why would someone buy that i think well, I guess no. There, there is a market for stuff that looks handmade, but mm-hmm. isn't. And there are lots of businesses where people es- essentially assemble pre-manufactured parts in more like a fabrication yeah. style. But that, to me, that's like a different business model. I think so. You know, at that point, you're almost not even selling your art i don't think you are i don't think you're selling art at that point at all anymore i think you're selling uh yeah you're selling manufacturing at that point right yeah yeah and half of it isn't yours (laughs) which isn't necessarily a bad thing it's typical of manufacturing though right i mean look at uh, a gm vehicle tear gm vehicle apart you know, they didn't make the lights. They didn't make the fans for the yeah. air control and stuff like that. They didn't make the carpet that goes in there. All that. Kind of, although they may, they might, they might own uh, as a subsidiary that company that makes the carpet or something mm-hmm. like that because they realized that as a cost-effective measure, it made sense to buy that company, right? Um, yeah. Obviously. But for for us, 
we are each of those subsidiaries. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's, that is what makes what we do unique. And that, you know, people come to us and they see what we do and they're like, wow, you made that. And you don't have to be like, yes, except this, 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 this. It's like, yeah, I did all of that. <laughs> and I think there are, there are times and ways to, to speed that up. Obviously I'm not saying that you should kill yourself, uh, you know, trying to forge everything from six inch round stock down to, you know, <laughs> but, uh, th- there's definitely, I think, a a healthy aspect that people appreciate that being you being each of those needed tasks i think this is a good chance for us to kind of flip this around a little bit and and shake things up and change the direction of this conversation maybe get back to some actual blacksmithing conversation dude you just (laughs) brought up you know six inch bar stock what's the largest bar stock you've ever worked with Um, two or two and a half, I guess. Uh, and you know, I have a 75 pound clay Spencer tire hammer that works really well, but you know, the most you can work with those is like three inch and I don't have any kind of press or anything yet. I would, I would love to get one. That's like one of the next tools that I want. Uh, but yeah, about two and a half. And most of that is just going to be for tooling and hammers and stuff uh, where you just, because a lot of tooling is just getting a certain profile on a large piece of material. So it has heft and stuff. Uh, But most stuff that I manufacture just because of, you know, I don't have that big of forging equipment uh, is like three quarter inch and below would would net most of my products. You brought up a Clay Spencer tire hammer. That's something that I absolutely mm-hmm. love. I love the Clay Spencer tire hammer. Dude, oh. such an awesome design. I'm working on one myself now. I'm a yeah. huge fan. <laughs> Where did yeah. you get yours from? Uh, a lot of people are going to recognize uh, John Perilou nice. in Louisiana. I built mine at a nice. shop, uh, class in his shop, Beauty. about three years ago with Curtis Herman. Yeah. I hope I'm getting this right. It's been a while. And Clay Spencer. Clay was there himself? Uh, and that, Lucky. yeah, yes, nice. he was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was a great experience. Uh, it's nuts that 40 guys, you know, assembled and made about 30 hammers in three days. One second. Someone forgot a pullover. <laughs> I'm telling you. Sorry, what was I saying? Oh yeah, the yeah, uh, Clay Spencer was there. But yeah, that was a lot of hammers. Yeah, dude, that's uh, something that I would love to try to do on a much smaller scale than what John's capable of doing. Uh, John's got one heck of a shop. Mine is minuscule yeah. in comparison to that is in in all different aspects the amount of machinery i have the size the power mm-hmm. that i've got going to it like that shop is awesome dude i oh i'm so jealous of john's shop man it's so was there okay man 
I, I can't. You, 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 we, we're, we're diving into the tools here, and she wants to come out so bad. I just, I got to let her out of the bag, okay? Are you cool with that? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, I want to know about your tools. I mean, tools. Tools. I, I want to know your tools. <laughs> you mentioned you got the power hammer. You don't have a press. I am interested to know what press you're eyeballing. You had one that is hot on your list by chance, or I. That's tough. I I really like old tools. Uh, I I collect old hand tools. Is it's actually hilarious. Like I have a video on my Instagram a while back about the screwdrivers that I own, and I probably have one in my pocket right now. Uh, <laughs> Like everyone makes fun of me, uh, I just I really like old tools. So with that said, I would really like to get uh, somewhere between like a six and an eight ton fly press. Oh, nice! Uh, now with the cost on that, whether I'll get one you know that's old or new, uh, I don't really know. I would prefer to get an old one, but I like the fly presses. Uh, just there, I've used one at another shop. They're dead silent. And I mean, tools like that, and I'm sure it's the same with any kind of press, but it just has like unlimited versatility. Mm -hmm. And the fly presses have a lot of them more throat than a lot of, uh, like smaller end hydraulic presses. And a lot of them, you know, you can bring things up through the bottom of the whole assembly, <laughs> uh, which isn't usually the case with, with hydraulic presses. So you can get like a lot more throw. And I just like the fact that it's manual. All right. I'll say, I would love a hydraulic press as well. I'm just personally more attracted <laughs> to the, uh, the manual ones. Uh, it's just my taste. It's like me with blondes and redheads. <laughs> oh shit. My wife's listening. Never mind. My wife, my wife's blonde. So that's, there you go. <laughs> Oh, okay. For blondes, what can I say? Um, what else uh, you got going on in there that's like fancy dancy as far as equipment? What, what do you have for an anvil, buddy? Oh, man. When I was 18, I saved up my money. And at the time, it was about $1,800 which was, at the time, the same cost as a used car. <laughs> That's not the case now, post-COVID. Those are totally different. But I, yeah, I saved my pennies, and I bought, uh, so I was just working part-time in, in high school, obviously. I bought a 260-some pound Holland Anvil. Oh, nice. It's a, uh, the double horn. Those guys yeah. are awesome. I, I love their, their anvils. Uh, they seem like great guys. Uh, it was kind of funny because I was going up to Canada, and so I was able to pick it up on my way back. And so I got to meet them and put it in the trailer and everything. Uh, they're super nice guys, and I have had zero issues with that anvil. In fact, I man, I love that thing. It took me probably, I think it was when I came back into my business was the I so I'd had it for like three years before I actually ground any of the corners off <laughs> which was terrible and I have to say now I like I highly recommend to anyone just get over it <laughs> grind the corners off your anvil like you won't regret it but it was still after years 
you know, and hundreds of hours, like still dead sharp on the corner where I drew out and stuff. I still remember the first time I dented it because, you know, the surface is just smooth and perfect. And I had an eight pound sledgehammer in my right hand and I missed and totally whiffed and just smashed the face like as hard as I could. And I just, I had like, you know, just reel back like in shock and horror because I had not, you know, <laughs> not like been touched with a hammer till that point. And uh, I pulled it away and I, it looked like it was a huge dent and I like wiped the grease off and I just like couldn't even tell. Wow. Like, uh, they are super awesome anvils. I mean, it, after years and you know, I was going to say years and years. Most people are like, you haven't been alive for years and years. <laughs> but for all the time I've owned it, you know, like five years now, uh, there are like some spots that you can tell it has been hit, but like as far as running your finger over it or stuff like that, like it's it's in just perfect condition. I love it. <laughs> I recommend them to everybody. What about a swage block? I have one of their swage blocks, uh, which when I got it, he told me not to tell anyone how I got it. from. <laughs> but uh, it was one of his that had come out of the casting, not quite right. Uh, and so it was kind of a last minute deal. He's like, well, you're here. What do you think about this You know, swage block? And so I, I picked that up uh, and I have liked it. I'm not as big of a fan of the ductile iron as I am the H13 because, you know, all their, their anvils are H13. And, you know, they talk about that has the advantage of being hard from top to bottom. And at first I was like, yeah, because I'm always going to be hammering on the side of my anvil. Yeah, I do that sometimes. (laughs) Or like the upsetting block and stuff, it's all hardened. But uh, the, the ductile iron... I think it, it works very well as long as, you know, you're using it for its intended purpose of swaging. Yeah. It's definitely not as resilient as the H13, but I think it's a lot more cost effective. Right. And their, their swage blocks for what they are, I think, are a really yeah. good deal. And it's, so I recommend them to people as well. Cool. Uh, I don't use it all that often, though, I must say. Like, every time I see a huge, nice swage block, I'm like, man, I want that. I don't use the one I have. All you know what, man? <laughs> so I have a 15 inch by 15 inch, four inch thick petting house smidge block. Wow. It's a beautiful piece. I use it. Are you done with that? Can I have that when you're done? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you about 60 years. Okay. Okay. It's a deal. Um, but uh, I had another one that I picked up from a gentleman just outside of Toronto area. His name's Pat Taylor. And pretty decent little swage block. It was $500 Canadian at the time, plus shipping. So by the time I got it and whatnot, I think it was just just over $650 for me to pay for it. I was mm-hmm. using it here and there. The nice thing about it is I had a bunch of dishes on both sides of it. I had different sizes of round dishes. There was a couple spoon dishes, and there was also a shovel dish on it. Awesome for that kind of stuff. What I didn't like about it is all the side grooves on it. Because it was ductile iron cast, um, mm. they were all wonky. I was I didn't 
Yeah. Oh, they really? Were not nice casts. They like. I guess I could have cleaned it up with an angle grinder if I wanted to. Like all the V grooves to have pulled out a nice bar through that V groove would have taken a lot of work on an, with an angle grinder to gotcha. clean up the V properly to make it nice. Um, some of the round, some of the rounds hmm. were the same way as well. So it's just like, yeah, I'm not number one. I'm not using those sides at all, and I've got the other swage block that has all that stuff on it. So I, but then the, the yeah. dishes, and then I started saying to myself, you know what? I would rather have individual dishing tools versus one large swage block that's hard to move around and stuff and that's what i've started to move towards now is creating individual dishing tools that i can put under my hydraulic press and yeah i'm a big fan of having individual tools for things especially since on a lot of big swaging yeah you want to do it you want to do it under your press i make it work under my power hammer uh the the that's interesting you say that about the patterns in the or the grooves being rough because you know it does have like a rougher surface uh that hasn't been a huge deal for me but part of that's just because i don't use those side swages nearly as often as the dishing ones but i do recall the couple of times i've had to you know make something a half round instead of a whole round uh, it'll have a pretty rough pattern, but the ductile iron, it's kind of convenient in that you can, it's usually cleaner and easier to smooth those out with a file. Like if you have a nice coarse mm-hmm. file, uh, it'll actually cut that down yeah. pretty fast. Not the case with H13. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you that. Got yeah. <laughs> That's an angle, angle grinder, grinder job. For sure. For sure. Okay. So in, in individual tools, dude, you, you have a gravitation towards making your own tooling what kind of stuff uh i mean just a lot of common like bending jigs Uh, i make a lot because i try you know just not to get back to business but as part of making items that you know the majority of people can have and walk away with as something that you've made i work on making a couple different kinds of hooks and stuff so lots of bending jigs. Um, there, let me see. Hmm. I recently made probably my all-time favorite tool. It goes in my power hammer for forging the grill pins. I don't know if you saw on mm-hmm. my Instagram. Uh, and what part of what I like about individualized tooling is that, you know, you can make, as blacksmiths, we can make tools fit to whatever is in our head. It's not like, well, you know, I can make these things with the tools that I have, and I'm going to work around that as like a parameter for your design. Now, you can make your design whatever you want, and then you just have to make your tooling match. <laughs> and so that, as long as your, your tooling making matches up with your, your big ideas, you know, uh, that, that can As long work as you out. can make the tooling, right? Yeah, exactly. I also like that I can put all the tools for one job. I usually use, because I'm uh, in the country, use baling twine. <laughs> but I'll, I'll hang them up on hooks or whatever, but you can put all the tools for one job in one spot. And it's not necessarily like you know trying to compile your other tools that you use for other things. 
It's like, no, these are dedicated See? to this you, task. And so that makes doing that task. You are faster. utilizing lean manufacturing. Yeah. It's fi <laughs> 5S is sort, sustain, standardize, shine, and set in order. Those are the five, five S's. So, okay. and essentially you're, you're sorting. That's one, set, one set. Mm -hmm. um, you're standardizing by creating your tooling, right? You've created a standardization for that project or that style of project. You know, you always, always stick to that standard, you don't go around it and, you create a standard for where you keep things. You sustain how you keep those things there by creating that spot mm -hmm. for it. You keep them nice and and always maintain yeah, your you tools. Keep, keep them all clean, all maintaining your tools, dude. It's like maintaining your vehicle. If you don't maintain your vehicle, you're just asking for problems, man. Mind you. Uh, I feel personally yeah. attacked. <laughs> <laughs> Every I'm I'm pretty good about that, but every time I turn my car on now, it reminds me that I need to change the oil. I don't have time, man. Okay, yeah, that's not one of the things you want to. I need yeah, to make time. All right, make time for that. Trust me. All right. I mean, right. it wasn't because I didn't change the oil, but I had to put a new engine in my truck. Thirteen thousand dollars later, and I'm not buying a new truck for a couple of years now. Yeah. Yeah, that that's hurt. rough. That hurt a lot. Yeah. So maintain your vehicles. Um, when you say maintain your tools, though, what are you talking about? So as far as like jigs, you know, they're clean when I first make them. I wire wheel them. I put a sealant on them. It's typically like a, an oil. I use uh, like what you would use as a... seed oil, maybe? Do you maybe use boiled linseed sure. oil? I love to use if that you, on if, tongs. Because yeah. you know what? There's this company that we are sponsored by, Detour Linseed Oil. Yeah. Really? Do you know about these guys? They make awesome I don't. Tell me Awesome linseed oil, bro. I mean, awesome. You can use the code ForgeChat10 at DetourLinseed.com and save yourself 10% on orders, $50 or more. And I'll tell you what. Boiled linseed oil that is food safe. Can't go wrong with that. Some of their other products, like their half beeswax, half linseed oil mixture that you can use for coating wood products, use it for finishing your metal products. I love it. I love it. And they mm -hmm. got one that's got a little bit of carnauba added into it. Another beautiful product, man. It's amazing stuff. That's at detoilinseed.com. Use it to uh, coat your uh, jigs so that they don't rust on you, right? Yep. You can certainly do that. Uh, that's especially easy in wax form once you've used your tool and it gets hot. <laughs> and it smells delicious. Uh, yeah. But the the big thing on for stuff like that is, you know, you're using jigs when you batch parts out, mostly, right? And so when you're done with the batch, just do that. Like, don't put it on the shelf thinking you're going to do that when you you know, close your shop down for the day. Cause you're not, <laughs> let's be honest. You're not thinking about that when you're closing down. You're like, Hmm, I want food. That's what I think about anyways. Uh, so that's what I do for those. Anything I put under the, the power hammer, I typically don't have to 
oil, and that's because the Clay Spencer tire hammers take a lot of oil on okay. the rim. And so most of the time, whatever you use underneath it, if you leave it there enough, it will get oil. <laughs> Which is kind of convenient. Yeah, we asked uh, Mr. Spencer what, like how much oil we should put on the rams. And he just said, you want it drippy. <laughs> and we were like, drippy? He's like, yep, drippy. So that's that's what, what I do now. for oil on the rams? Uh, I used just basically what I use in my car. Okay. <laughs> Is that 15N? Man. That's metal. No. Yeah, 15W. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Like 10W something. Some kind of oil like that. Uh, it really doesn't matter. You for a second there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, as long as it's not, I mean, just, really just nothing that'll okay. gum up. Uh, preferably nothing that will freeze if your shop isn't uh, mm. heated or cooled, which mine yeah, is. Yeah, but you're in Missouri, currently. so I mean, what do you get for cold temperatures? They're like minus two. The worst I've ever seen here is negative eight, negative ten, I think. Okay. Uh, but that was like one time. Most winters, it'll get down around zero for a little bit. But it's not like it hangs out there forever. I'm trying to remember how your guys' uh, heat index scale works in Freedom Height. Is zero freezing? Is <laughs> uh, 32 is the freezing point. So minus 8 would be significantly colder than freezing point. Oh, yes. Wow. I didn't think it got uh, that cold in Missouri, dude. Oh, it, it gets cold. It gets cold enough that uh, you know, obviously frostbite, but sometimes it's like wear a face thing or breathe. So you guys really get like slowly. full out winter there then pretty so, much. Yeah. Well, I, until I was 10, we lived in California. And so I think we get full on winter, but compared to you guys, probably not. You guys get a ski season there? <laughs> okay. No, no, there used to be a ski place north of town. But they had to manufacture pretty much all of their snow pretty oh, much all winter. <laughs> Wait, Missouri. Derek Melton's uh, in Missouri, isn't he? No, he's oh, in okay. Mississippi. Oh, that's why I I'm believe. getting things mixed up. I'm thinking of Mississippi. Okay. Uh, oh, I, gotcha. My bad. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. It gets, like, cold there, but, yeah. <laughs> so when it's when it's that cold, that. I, and we're jumping all over the place. This mm -hmm. is my ADD. Welcome to ADD world. Uh, what do you do? What do you do for heat in the shop? Just fire up the forge and let it warm up, or yeah, uh, I wear a big. Jacket. What do you have for a forge? <laughs> if so, I have three forges. The first one is the very first forge that I built with my teacher. Uh, that I used to. Paul in and out. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> uh, had that thing a long time now. But it's a kind of cobbled together coal forge that I don't use unless I have to now. Just partially just because I don't have good ventilation for it. And you really want yeah. good ventilation for that. Uh, but pretty much all the time I use uh, a propane forge that I built. And it has, a, what's that place? The Pine... Pine River, 
Pine Ridge, Pine Ridge Burners, okay. I think. Uh, but they make really nice ribbon burners. It's a four by eight. Uh, the chamber is probably about 18 inches long by 12 inch Ooh. diameter. So it'll melt things if I want it to. So uh, I, don't, uh, with I do need to make a or with brick. Oh man. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, I just did a t- ton of research on this. I'm not a genius about it, but what I ended up doing is the, the fiber blanket is only so good because it doesn't hold right. in any heat. It just reflects heat, basically. So if I put a, you know, even a reasonably large chunk of steel into a forge that just has the fiber blanket, it just sucks all the heat out of the whole chamber. And then you're just kind of blowing hot air on it, and that's lame. But the refractory doesn't hold heat. It, you know, it, it soaks it in, but it also lets it out. It doesn't bounce oh, it back in. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was I put about two inches of the fiber blanket around the outside and then sealed it like you have to so it doesn't give you cancer. And then I put like another two inches of the refractory cement inside of that. So all that rock is just a big heat sink. And then the, the blanket keeps it from all just going out to the outside. Gnarly. That's uh, You definitely broke the science down of it 100% correctly there in my knowledge man uh i've 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 put a lot of thought into it before too and uh i i've gone with the brick forge myself just for simplicity i've looked Mm -hmm. at how much it takes to build one of those refractory forges and i said no thank you um yeah oh my goodness so funny story about that I I got Castellite 30, which is supposed to be like the best for that and the most resistant to flux. Because I was young and thought, you know, maybe I'll be doing forge welding. I barely do any. I do all that in my coal forge, actually. It's yes! My, my opinion too, bro. But, yeah. Um, but I, I get the data sheet and the instructions for the Castellite 30, and it's like, you know, bring it up to this temperature, like 400 degrees, and hold it for four hours or an hour for every inch of thickness or whatever. Then cool it down. Then bring it to this temperature and hold for this time. And I have a 4 by 8 ribbon burner in there. Like, the thing runs 300,000 BTUs when it's turned on all the way. Like, I'm not just sitting there with a little temperature, like, holding it. It's not an oven. <laughs> and... I was like, there's no way I can do that. But then if you can't do that, there's no guarantee. So I literally emailed the guy and I was like, hey, I know that you're a, you make forges too. I know that you are not following these instructions. Please tell me what you do. Like, I won't blame you if it goes wrong. Please tell me. And he's just like, yeah, I just heat it up and then let it cool down like a little at a time. Like the peak temperature getting Every a little time. hotter each time over the period of a couple uh a yeah, few hours, over a couple days type thing depending on how big and thick you go right yeah yep yeah mine isn't that's that what she big, says so <laughs> sorry man not bad happens man. Like, i don't know <laughs> one of these days i'll get over it probably not can't help it well that kind of stuff uh <laughs> If you wanted advice, probably weren't weren't asking for advice, but whatever you put in comes out. Uh, So I found that's the case for me, uh, and that whatever kind of content or whatever I consume 
uh, is the type of thing that I, that, you know, that comes into my head now. I was, yeah, I know you were, I was thinking something else. I was thinking about what you put in the hole comes out the hole. (laughs) That's not even remotely (laughs) what I was saying. Oh my word. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All right. Back to blacksmithing. (laughs) Tell me yeah, about go. your hammer. <laughs> no, seriously. The, the, the hammer, hammer that, that I you heard. personally prefer to use on a daily basis, your go-to hammer, what is your preference on that, sir? Okay. So I was actually, because I listened to the episode of your podcast with Matthew Harris. Yeah. I love his work. Um, and I was listening to what he said that he liked in a hammer. And I was just like, yes, that's like exactly like my hammer, except a little bit different. But exactly the same. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, exactly the same, but just different. <laughs> so it's the the weight is off center. So it's it's like a dog's head. It's not as extreme as most of those. Uh, and what it has like a, I usually go by like thirds or fifths. Uh, but I'll have, you know, a third or three fifths. Man, that probably doesn't mean anything to you. Why? <laughs> uh, of the the middle of the face why is would flat, you... right? Well, well, and then it well, kind of no, no, no. Why would you say there. that it would make sense to me though? I, I'm, I'm missing. Uh, sorry, I was thinking of inches, but I then I realized that fractions are the same everywhere. You know, if you're like, oh, a third of whatever is still a third. So now I you know what them. The, okay, so <laughs> misconception about that. We probably use okay. inches in Canada more than we use centimeters. Yeah. Really? It's because okay. we are so tied right. to buy America manufacturing. Yeah. So. Gotcha. If you ask okay. any Canadian how tall they are, they're going to tell you six foot whatever. They're not going to say I'm 159 inches or centimeters, sorry. <laughs> they definitely wouldn't tell you that. That's a, lot, a lot of, of inches. inches. Um, <laughs> anyhow. Hammer. So, okay, no, so like, you're talking yeah. about the face having a large flat mm-hmm. portion to it and then rounding out. Yeah, and, yeah, and then the the uh, corners have For a good sure. radius on them. But I think a lot of people like just use rounding hammers, and I don't really understand that because you can like if you're forging a short taper, you know, you want a I anyways want a straight line that's you know it's not parallel but it's mirrored of the angle of the anvil, and you want it to have the same shape. And if you have a rounding hammer, whatever f- surface you strike with that will always have yeah. a radius in it. And sometimes that's not apparent, and sometimes you can feather that out. But I found that having a flat spot in the center of the face means that I can have straight lines on my forgings and not just enough, so many, many, many dimples that they're so small that it looks flat. Uh because, I mean, that's kind of like you round things out. It's not technically round. It just has so many flat sides it looks round. Uh, it's kind yeah. of the, the same concept. But then you have to have it uh, scoop away from there. Because that way, if you aren't perfectly on the money with your hammer angle, you aren't just putting mm-hmm. the corner into it. 
that, that's my two cents. I don't know how much sense that made, but the uh, the other end is just a broad. Uh, it's kind of like a straight peen, but it's just a big Beauty. round over. That's sweet. That's super awesome for drying out too, right? And then trying to. Yeah. What is the technique you like to use for drying out? It it really depends on what it is. So you don't have a power hammer of any kind? I have a press yes. and I'm building a power hammer. I have used a power hammer before. Okay. So my main technique for anything that isn't small drawing out is the power hammer. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll finish that I out did, by I hand. meant by hand, you but, guy. Jeez, of course, if anybody okay. has a power so, hammer, that's the way to go. Come on, jeez. <laughs> Well, my my point was that, well, well, let me think about this. Let me think about this. I I found that the best technique for me, if I'm wanting to draw something out in a hurry by hand, is to use Mm -hmm. the corner of the anvil. And it has, like, it has more control than using the horn. So the horn is nice because it isolates the pressure, which is the reason a lot of people like rounding hammers. But no matter what angle you go on the horn, it's the same. Whereas on the corner of the anvil, if your bar is up steeper, it's digging in faster. And if your bar is at a shallower angle, it's not digging in as far. So you can seriously, like it's kind of crazy. You can make something that just looks like it's completely mangled on the end. And then you take it and in just a half a dozen hits or whatever, you squish out those high spots that are left and, you know, you can taper something in no time like that. That's my preferred technique. Where did you learn that? I have no (laughs) idea. (laughs) I'm sure that's something that my teacher taught me. Uh, But a, a lot of places will tell you that, you know, you can use the horn or the corner of the anvil and people stray away from the corner of the anvil because it is more aggressive and that can be problematic because you never want the horn to plunge even all the way just to your final you don't want your bar on the corner of the anvil forged to the final thickness because you're still going to have to finish it out by hand and it's going to get even smaller and you can absolutely go too far with that. So it takes more control, but I'm a big fan of doing things that require more control and just getting better at it versus sticking with something else that may not work as well because it works right, right. now. You hit a really fucking sweet spot there, dude, when you said the fact that you don't want to forge to final dimension at that point right and i've it was a tough lesson i had to learn on when i first started forging that oh shit you've already brought it to this but now you've got to continue doing this to it and in the long run it's a lot smaller than what you wanted you got to do a lot more work to get it to where you did want it and stuff yeah man that's that's a big learning lesson and, and you can take huge strides in your lessons if you can uh pick that up sooner than later right yeah and really, you have to think about what are the next steps, because there, you know, there's obviously a time to forge the final dimension, and sometimes that's the first time that you are, you know, on that part of whatever your piece is. But a lot of times, I'm thinking, okay, you know, 
I there's these really I could break this down into two components. And I could finish this one out, but I'm going to have to clamp it in the vise to do the other one. I need to work it down some now, but then when I clamp it in the vise, it's going to get boogered up from being squeezed and hit like that. So I need to leave enough material that I'll be able to come back. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, really, you just want to think ahead about your operations that you're going to be doing. Speaking about putting something in the vise and boogering it up, as you say... <laughs> I was trying to think of another thing on the, but no, I couldn't no, on the fly. Good, Sorry. I appreciate your uh, PG thirteen man. Um, do you do anything in regards to not marring the surface of your work from your jaws of your vice? <laughs> Once again, I feel personally attacked. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I try now and then, and I always, I'm like, man, I just need to sit down and I need to make a set of spacers. I need to make a set of, you know, soft jaws in between jaws. I'm kind of helped out by the fact that my vice is so old, the jaws don't have any that teeth or markings yep. left. But you still have, yeah. you know, that square corner, like the corner of the jaw is still square, and that is where you get into trouble. And I should definitely make some rounded ones. Yep. <laughs> One of the things. So I guess that's probably why I think ahead about, I brought up the vice specifically and thinking ahead because I have to work around that intentionally <laughs> instead of just making the right tool no, for the job. I'm bringing up uh, learning experiences here and, and that's, I think that one of the most beneficial things that we can bring up on the podcast is experiences people can learn from. One of the things that I found when it comes mm -hmm. to a vice like that, and I don't know if somebody did this to the vice or if we bought the jaws like this, but at my workplace, we have one specific vice that's like this where on one side of the jaws, there's two um, rounds put in like in a vertical position on the jaws. So you can, one is half inch and the other mm -hmm. one is three eighths. So you can put in a half inch bar and clamp it, clamp the vice completely closed on half inch bar, almost completely closed at that point where it's almost closed. That's when it gets tight on the bar and it holds half inch bar in that groove yeah. just perfectly and doesn't mar at all. It's like, who, who did this? This is an amazing idea. Thank you. It's like so awesome to throw a bar in there to cut it off and I, you don't mar it up or anything like that. Or I don't use it for blacksmithing at all. Right. So, yeah. I, I have made a set of those. There was a time that I had to upset a bunch of uh, half-inch pins. I made some hinges for some doors a while back. Uh, the doors were probably six foot by eight foot. And so they had to be pretty big. I put half-inch pins. It was probably overkill, but I wanted to head those over. And so I did make two half-rounds to cradle that. And one thing, another thing I found with that is that not only does it not mar it, but it also increases your clamping force surface contact. So yeah, you have more yep. more pressure. Totally. Because when you try to clamp force. a round bar in just flat jaws, it'll 
tend to want to like spin or twist on you because you're only clamping, like you said, on that small mm-hmm. surface of that the round is touching. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's so little friction that it I whenever I try to do that, it just, you know, I end up hammering it out the bottom. <laughs> Inappropriate joke, holding back, holding back, holding back. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay, something else. Change the topic. Come on, help me here, Ethan. <laughs> I don't know. I refer to your list of questions. How long have you been blacksmithing for? Nine years. No, your first anvil, dude. I know you've been blacksmithing for nine years. We brought that up already. I was a dumb yeah, question. I'm sorry. Your first anvil, <laughs> your very first anvil, what was it, buddy? Uh, so it was a railroad track anvil. Of course. Uh, for Christmas one year when I was, I guess, 14 or 15, I got that and two sacks of coal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, classic, classic. Uh, but I still have that anvil. I never use it, but I did a while back. I made like a tailgate rig uh, for forging because my third forge is an 1800s wagon tailgate forge. Oh, so, crazy. Yeah, I've, I put that on a rig that I can take uh, places like to friends' houses if they want to try it. Yeah. And what I learned is that I never knew how little rebound that anvil has. Like using my Holland anvil has just like spoiled me for life. <laughs> right. Like I, I did a lot of stuff on that anvil and that's absolutely a great way to start. Man, you will never regret buying a nice anvil. <laughs> you want to talk about ruffling fi- tail feathers, buddy. You're on, now you're ruffling tail feathers. Do you know how much you got the internet stirring right now when you say that? <laughs> I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to use some of those, but just rebound, that they aren't whole, great anvils. <laughs> no, no, no. But the whole idea on rebound, I, oh, I how oh. many people I've heard that this whole like, oh, rebound doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with the equation of blacksmithing. And I mean, now they're full of it. <laughs> go and work on a railroad track and then go work on a Holland anvil. You can do even take a Holland anvil that is the exact same weight as that railroad track. And you will yeah. find a huge fucking difference, man. Huge. It, I mean, a lot of it is just about how much mass you have underneath where you're hitting. There's my next question but, for you. What do you have underneath it? Oh, Oh, underneath my anvil. Uh, I guess I, yeah. Hmm. Oh, you thought I was going to have an inappropriate question there, didn't you? No, no. I was, I thought, because I was thinking of like the surface of the anvil as one plane, because I tend to think of the surface of the anvil and the surface of your hammer uh, as a pair. And like, they're never separate when I'm thinking about those things, as far as how the material is going to move. And so when you said, what do you have underneath it? I thought you meant the surface of the anvil. So I was confused. I got but you. under my anvil as a whole, yes. <laughs> I was like, uh, it's 260 some pounds. But I have nine six by six beams uh, in a three by three pattern. And then I banded those together with some 
three eighths by two inch flat bar, which in hindsight was way overkill, but it's held up quite well. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you this then. And I'm guessing through your experiences, you probably have worked on an anvil that is on a steel base. Oh yeah. Big difference. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so the garden tool guy, Homestead Iron, his is on a steel va- base. It's wedged in. The base is filled with sand, and it's secured into a dirt floor. Oh yeah, baby. And I don't. I cannot honestly say that the rebound is that notably affected. But the impact. I guess that's probably not correct. Uh, the rebound, as far as what I feel in the hammer, is more or less the same. And maybe it's just been a long time. People can yell at me later, like I said. <laughs> Send me emails. Uh, but you can see the effect on the metal. Uh, and you can hear and feel it in that there's just like no movement mm-hmm. when it's wedged in and anchored into the ground. And it doesn't make nearly as much noise because there's just like no vibration yeah. that thing's stuck in there so tight it's awesome <laughs> yeah that's how i have my anvil mounted i created a, a steel base for it out of quarter inch plate created a box filled it with sand a little bit of oil in there to help prevent corrosion okay and, and then wedged the anvil into the top plate and gotcha yeah dude as soon as as soon as I the, I had the wedge that I drove into it is actually a half round plate that I made kind of that fits into the foot of the anvil on this on the one side, and it's only okay. it's only wedged in on the one side of the anvil. The other side doesn't have a wedge at all. Just that one plate wedges it in there. And as I drove it into the anvil to wedge it in into the anvil stand, you could mm-hmm. hear the anvil go deader and deader and deader. Yeah, it was insane. Yeah. People that hear me run my work on my anvil, they're like, "What's wrong with your anvil? What do you mean what's <laughs> wrong with it? It's it's better than your anvil, I'll tell you that much." Yeah, the yeah, this guy has had a the the metal base was one of those cast ones. Those are sweet. There's man, there's a place on on Instagram. There's a couple guys that just resell anvils. Yeah, but he, I think it's. Uh, Ah, I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> but his are always sitting on one of those cast iron bases, like as display. Mm-hmm. Even if it's like a 60-pound anvil, it's always sitting on this huge cast base. It's funny. That's awesome. Is that, uh, I know Blacksmith Tools is like, what's his name, actual name now? Andrew, I think. Andrew Alexander? Yes. That's not the one I'm thinking of, but he does have awesome stuff. Okay, and then there's Anvils Online. That's uh, yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of. I think. I've actually interviewed him. He was one of my very first interviews I've ever did. That I never, yeah. I never actually released the interview because number one, the audio quality is garbage because it was before I had a proper setup, and number two, mm-hmm. it was in my early stages of not knowing how to properly podcast and stuff. So I just it was like, 
it's kind of cringeworthy, I guess, if that's, I don't, I don't like to use this woke terminology, but yeah, that's the word I would use for it probably. Yeah. Yeah. But dude. Triggered. <laughs> I, well, the thing is, is I, I would probably trigger people if they listen to it. Like, yeah. I just yeah. do that on a regular basis, but uh, wicked, wicked dude from the UK, man, that's got a crazy collection of anvils. That's for sure. And there's a few guys here in Winnipeg that have actually purchased anvils from him and fly presses and stuff like that too Mm -hmm. um yeah man cool so uh wooden base for your anvil what height do you have it sitting at you got the good old knuckle equation going on or i do not um (laughs) tell me more so i probably should lower my anvil so i i i I think I'm at a point now where I want to change it, but that's only after years of experimenting. I, I have way higher than most people. Uh, so it's probably, I don't know, four inches above my knuckles. It's, it's a good ways up there because I like to keep a very close eye on what I'm doing. <laughs> And if I have to like bend over or pick it up, like that kind of bothers me. <laughs> but also, uh, I'm tall enough. I and my arms are long enough. I'm a you know pretty skinny guy, so I don't like bending over all that way. Yeah. Also, yeah, call me old at 22, but I don't like bending over. <laughs> but I have noticed, and this is why I want to change that. That if I have to reach over to the other side of the anvil at an angle like to make a really sharp taper on a rod i have to like pick my shoulder way up yeah until that that kind of thing is not good (laughs) on like you know my shoulder and joints and stuff so i probably should lower it but i just haven't gotten around to it it's one of those things that it's hard to make time for yeah well uh, dude that's one of the biggest issues when it comes to well, the 5S lean manufacturing thing is trying to make time to do those projects that you know are super beneficial to you and your shop and your business. But for whatever reason, you just can't decide to put that time aside because it's, that project itself isn't going to bring in money. It's going to be a bit of a, of a, a catalyst to bringing in more money in the, in the future. Yeah. But if anything, you're going to spend money doing that project and see absolutely <laughs> no return from it for quite some time and wonder to yourself whether or not it was worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, the return is just how, how your joints feel on, on something like that. But the, there's, that's one of the things with five S is there's four quadrants where you've got, your stuff that is expensive and hard to accomplish, expensive but easy to accomplish, and then cheap but hard to accomplish, and then cheap and easy to accomplish. And you put your you put your projects in these different quadrants and then sit back and look mm-hmm. at them and decide, okay, the cheap and the easy, I can pick off boom, boom, boom like this, right? Like, oh, I need to put a sign on the door that tells people to ring the doorbell or I won't hear them. Right. I mean, that, that cheap and cheap and easy, quick to do. And it could be a big thing that actually helps your business by doing something simple like that. Right. And then there's 
expensive mm-hmm. and a lot of work. And that's like buying a new power hammer and having it installed in the shop. Not going to happen at the click of a finger type thing, right? And you've got yeah. to you've got to put your projects in these different quadrants and decide what makes most sense to attack and when it makes most sense to attack and almost create a schedule based off of these things and try to adhere to that. I, I, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of um, insight to what 5S is because you said you don't know what it is. And I know that there's a lot of people that listen to the show that are in that same boat, that they don't really understand what 5S is and how to properly apply it to their business, right? And I, being a, yeah. a, a small ma- uh, business like we are, it's there's... A, such a different way to approach 5s than it is for a large manufacturing business obviously we're not doing lean manufacturing right but certain aspects of 5s can really come into context in the shop dude now i do utilize an kind of an extent of what you're talking about with lean manufacturing of making it simple in the a lot of the simpler stuff that i make like we were talking about to take to market i intentionally i sometimes reduce the design down to what i can accomplish knowing how much work the different steps are going to take so i may want to do this to it but i know that that's going to increase my time by you know 30 or 40 percent and because i keep breakdowns of my projects like that and so i'll just say you know how can we eliminate that process and my end goal with that is eventually I would love to just hire another young guy to do all these other projects. And you can't really find skilled smiths all over Mm -hmm. the place. So it's not like I'm going to say, you know, here's this complicated thing. I want you to make, you know, a whole bunch of these for me. It's like, here, I've boiled this process down to like wrapping and hitting. Like you do these two simple processes (laughs) And so I, I do design things, some things that I want to be mass produced simply with the end goal, not only of doing it less with my time, but eventually making it something so simple that I could hand off to someone who had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, just don't give that stuff to China, right? <laughs> no. No. I know lots of young dudes that would love to do that. One well, that though that's that's how you bring somebody into the shop that's not familiar with what we do, dude. Mm-hmm. And I I don't yep. know how many people I've talked to that have said that exact same thing that it is so hard to find a skilled smith that is willing to come work for someone else. Why would they? Why would a skilled smith go work for somebody else? <laughs> they got I mean, I work for right. myself. We, got it. So. we didn't get into this to work for somebody else. Otherwise, that's what I'd be doing. I got into this because it's yeah. what do I enjoy doing for myself. And I want to do it for myself. I want to create my own business, right? And then you get guys that don't know what they want to do. They're okay to just go work for somebody else. But... You need mm-hmm. to freaking hold their hand in a lot a lot of situations. <laughs> they might have some aptitude. Yeah. They might have mechanical aptitude and they might be able to pick things up quickly or maybe they don't have mechanical aptitude and they're completely not the right person for your shop in that a- essence, right? But if you don't have the brain and brawn to hold their hand for a little bit and say like this, I need to teach you and bring you up to snuff to you know, being here and hopefully you're not going to take off as soon as you've retained that knowledge. (laughs) But the the idea to to say like, 
oh, I just need a skilled Smith that knows how to do this stuff. Like, good fucking luck, man. Good fucking luck. Yeah. Now, there are some shops that do attract skilled Smiths, and it's because they're the jobs that they do and the tooling that they have enables skilled Smiths to do more than they currently can, right? It's like, you know, I could work in my shop and try and do this, or I could go work for them, and they're going to give me a 401k and this, that, and the other thing. Like, uh, I think around Louisville, right, it's, uh, I think it's Manyard Studios on Instagram. They were hiring a while back, and yeah, I mean, they had a full-time position doing awesome forging, and they had full benefits and that kind of stuff. I think if you're on that level, you can probably find a skilled smith. Because at that point, it's worth someone moving there. Because you're probably not going to find someone in your area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as far as like shops like mine, yeah, it's, I'm not going to find a skilled smith. If I could, I probably couldn't afford him. <laughs> well, I mean, you listen to the Matthew Harris episode. He's gone through his ups and downs with trying to bring employees mm-hmm. into the shop. That's where he's at now with his business. And I mean, my wife, she runs her own business. She has a a house cleaning business. It's a lot different than what we do, obviously, right? But the same thing goes in with employees and having to retain employees and train employees and finding the right people that fit your business. It's not an easy task, especially nowadays, man, dude. I don't know. This whole pandemic thing just really messed all that up for some reason. I don't know. Let's not talk about politics. Um, uh, change topics again yeah it's i don't know it's that was interesting some people decided they were gonna learn how to work with their hands and some people decided they were gonna watch more netflix (laughs) (laughs) so in that sense yeah it's like it's like on one hand there are more skilled people than there were and on the other hand there you know there's a lot of people that I just I have no interest in that. Yeah, but, but those people that picked up the skills are like utilizing those skills for self-preservation versus a bit, so helping somebody else's business. And then these people that got like on the Netflix bandwagon are like, I want to work from home. <laughs> I do uh. Working from home, man. I could talk about that. <laughs> How many people did I just piss <laughs> off there, eh? I know my friend Matthew LaRoquez is listening. He's going to be like, you fucker. <laughs> it, it's just a hoot because companies, you know, were kind of like, okay, yeah, you know, we'll let everyone work from home. And then they're like, um, we're looking at our data and we realized you didn't get anything done. <laughs> but now everyone's like, no, I have to work yeah, from home. Uh, it's this whole like i've been in manufacturing for almost 20 years now and well this i've been in the same job for 15 and man watching what happened dude and how it changed the the dynamics of the workplace it's almost it's almost degraded me as a human being as far as i'm concerned like i feel less than now it's it's awful i it's hearing these people talk about how they feel so much better about being able to work from home and how more uh how much more they can get done with their day and this and that and how it's changed their personal life for the better and this and that and i'm like oh that's great that it's changed your personal life for the better because work 
But you still have to get things done for your work, company. Because work sucks now, because none of you guys are here, and now it sucks because none of you are here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about yeah. that. Yeah. We're definitely designed to be in uh, community. And I, I do run into that with my work. Like, you ask me questions like, you know, have, what do you think about this and this? And it's like, I have no clue about that because I, you know, I don't work with other blacksmiths day in and day out. Uh, so yeah, that definitely plays a role no matter what you're doing. Which is why when you asked if I wanted to do this podcast, I was like, man, I hope I can still talk to people about metalworking. <laughs> I think we've done pretty good so far, man. I think so. Have you uh, dove into any books for blacksmithing? Um, yes. So, like I said, I have and I love Mark Asprey's books. Right. Uh, and I need to get more into those. But I have not. It just takes a lot of time. I tell people running a business is two nine-to-fives mm-hmm. and one lunar lighting job. <laughs> um but as far as, as books aside from that, I've read, I've read or skimmed through a whole bunch. There's a lot out there. A lot of them are older. Uh, one of them I have is from, I think, the late 1800s. Oh, right. I also like old books. And it's hilarious. It gives business advice to people in that time era. And it literally includes shower at least once a week so that you don't offend your customers. <laughs> and I just want everyone to know uh, I shower more than once a week. But anyways, uh, it, I have a hard time with, with books now because a lot of that information is repeated. So there's a lot of beginning blacksmith books. There's not a lot that are on a lot higher level. And part of that's because that's hard to teach over a book yeah it's a lot easier in in person once someone has an understanding of the fundamentals and so i haven't really read any of those in a long time because i just flip through and now and then you see something like oh they do that differently you know i like what they do but it's uh i'm not aware of too many books that are okay something that i would pick up and read now ones that i read that were good for me when i started uh, I think there's one edge of the anvil. It had some weird personal stuff at the end, apparently. <laughs> uh, but all the forging information was good. Uh, and I can't really think of, of any other ones by name off the top of my head. What about uh, YouTube or internet stuff? Where do you lean to on that? Um, I I do like watching other blacksmiths. I found it's relaxing for me to watch people do woodworking. And I think part of that is because I admit that I'm terrible with wood. And so I don't have to like overthink what they're saying. I'm just like, oh yeah, that's cool. <laughs> with, with the metalworking I'm thinking about, like, oh, you know, like, oh, how could I incorporate that tool yeah, in what I do? Yeah. Uh, but the last podcast you published, right, was with Timothy. Uh, I love watching his stuff. Fuck yeah, buddy. He has he his tooling and and processes is all very very clean, very creative. Um, he goes through lots of trial and error, and I appreciate that, yeah. that he shows that. 
uh, but I just like watching how he develops tooling for products as well as just watching him make anything. He's a, seems like a super great guy. Yeah, dude. Uh, I really like watching Adam Booth. Oh, uh, it's not a name I'm familiar with. Oh, so uh, A-Bombs79, I think. Oh, so on okay. Yeah, I've heard that name before. He posts like hour-long machining videos where he tells you about machining. And I have a lathe that I, I need to assemble. Uh, my friend Daniel will probably listen to this later and be like, I helped you move that a year ago and you still haven't assembled it. You're dead to me. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I find machining like really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I could I could tap through my subscription speed. I'm trying to think of other I know there are blacksmiths that I like watching, but on the spot here I can't think of What about <laughs> what about on Instagram? Is there anybody hot on your Instagram list? Uh let's see, I'd mentioned Manyard Studios and Matthew Harris. Well them I follow your Instagram. <laughs> That's I wouldn't recommend being hot on my list that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> nothing fancy to see there uh i like i like uh following derek melton yeah buddy especially in his stories because he just talks about not necessarily like forging all the time but he just talks about like what goes into it mm -hmm. and like how it is and how different machines work and it it's just, it's a lot more like blacksmith community-minded posts yep. versus products, I guess. Yep. Uh, I mean, he does post a lot of stuff that he makes and sells, but I mean, he was at the the Power Hammer build that I was I at. was going to ask you that. Right. I got to meet him, too. That's yeah. awesome, dude. I, actually, one of my yep. favorite things about, one of the favorite posts he's ever talked about is how he organizes his shop. And yeah, how he has his power hammer set up because he's got like what, yep. three different power hammers. He has or four, four yeah. or he sold the fourth one recently or something. Yeah, and then he's got hydraulic press on top of that too, and it's just like okay, yeah. And and it's not a big shop that he's got either. He's got it organized like yep. a freaking maze there, man. It's insane. It's very. Cool. I know when you see videos of his shop. And the this is I mean this is in no way a dig if it sounds that way, but it's so funny because like everything you're like looking into a pathway. Yep. And his tool is on one side of the path and like everything is right there and close at hand. But I can never picture fully in my head like the full layout. Everything's like yeah. <laughs> parts around there. But yeah, he's got that dialed in. It was Yeah, you get to you start to try to imagine the full layout and you're like, man. Yeah, how big is this place actually? Yeah. Right? And then he like you think it would be like forty by forty. Yeah, I can't remember how he said how big he said it is, but I'm pretty sure he said it's just over a uh, oversized double garage type thing. Yeah, so. yeah, something like that. And one whole corner is uh, what used to be an office, I guess. But uh, blacksmith, dead or alive, if you could spend a day with anyone, who would it be? Wow. Uh, gonna embarrass myself. I don't know of that many old blacksmiths. Uh, I've heard from people that learned from uh, Sit Yuri Hoffi. Mm -hmm. Yep. Am I getting yep. that right? Big, big name. I've Aaron. heard from people who 
learned from him that it was a harrowing but excellent experience. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Vader would say, uh, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so th- that would probably that would probably be a good one. Uh, cool. Cool. Uh, what are you listening to in the shop lately, bud? What's hot in your music list? Uh, I've been listening to... Uh, I like making it podcasts. <laughs> uh, n- none of them are are blacksmiths. I think they they do talk more about the business side. I tend to listen and to people that aren't blacksmiths, apparently. <laughs> um, and then once again, woodworkers seven thirty one woodworks is just south of me in Arkansas. Okay, and so I. And they seem like super great people. I always like listening to their podcast. I have not found any new music in a long, long time. Uh, I like big band music. Uh, a friend sent me a song, Wounded Hands by Gordon Moat, uh, recently. Oh, okay. That was really good. It was like the first new song I'd listened to in a long time. <laughs> I'm, that's the one I'm going to take from you, buddy. What okay. was it again? Uh, Wounded Hands by Gordon Moat. By Gordon Moat? Mm-hmm. Cool. I think it's M-O-T-E. Cool. I have been listening to all sorts of different stuff. And I just had it in my head, the song that I was going to go with, and now I've lost it. Shoot. <laughs> shit what what the hell i just had it i Sorry. pulled it up on the no it's not your fault i freaking did it to myself i think man kind of i don't know uh but up cat empire I was, i'll go with a cat empire song because two shoes two shoes by cat empire i love that song two shoes yeah, great song Gonna have to write that. Yeah, down. actually, if you and the reason the reason I'm bringing it up because you mentioned you like big band stuff. They mm-hmm. are kind of in that realm a little bit. They like okay. the ska kind of stuff or whatever, but like not punk. They <laughs> okay. definitely not punk. I I wouldn't put them in in a punk category. They're like a they're a happy Australian band. Okay, yeah. if I were to pick an all time favorite. Uh, music artist, it would. I think I would never regret having said Glenn Miller. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. What's What's your favorite song by him? Man, he has a lot of good songs. I like the song of the Volga Boatman. That, that That's a good one. Okay. It's a classic. I'll keep that one. Cool. <laughs> Are you saying you want me to change your your pick for the week? No, I do not. <laughs> if I if I had to tell you what my favorite artist of all time was, I think I'd have to lean towards White Zombie, I think. <laughs> I have never heard of that band. But all right. I'm sure you've probably heard of Rob Zombie, right? No, I have okay, not. Okay, so he's he did he did like a bunch of movies and stuff and he was part he was like a quite a well-known artist or whatever and before he became solo he was part of a band called white zombie and they had 
like they started in the eighties and they released a bunch of albums, but the one that like really like picked up was called uh, La Sexaristo. And it was available through Columbia House back in the early nineties. I don't you probably have no idea what Columbia House is either, right? So in the in the nineties, <laughs> there was this awesome thing you could order CDs online. And if you lived in a rural community like myself, where they didn't even have a store to buy CDs, you didn't have a choice but to order them in online. And this was a big thing. You yeah. like put in your order, and like a month later, eleven CDs would show up on your doorstep. And I think the first eleven cost like a dollar or something like that. And then afterwards, you had to buy like six more CDs at like regular price that ranged anywhere from like 15 to 25 bucks or something like that anyways i happened to buy this cd on a whim through this freaking deal and it literally has become my favorite album of all time it is such a good fucking album dude so like okay start to, start to end it's just a masterpiece it really is and it, you ha- it's one of those ones where you almost have to listen to it from start to end it okay. just doesn't do it not a lot of albums like that. Most albums, there's like two songs that you really like, some that are okay, and some that you skip every time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is, and I mean, oh, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Do you know who those guys are? Oh, <laughs> dude, another amazing Australian band. You want to talk okay. music that will change your life? Holy frick, and mind blowing when I listened to those guys for the first time. It might have been the mushrooms, but. <laughs> oh, my word. Yeah. Um, any closing remarks about the whole experience you've had so far in life, man? Or The whole experience in life? Yeah. Well, you know, for the podcast, not life. For the podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's like, man, we're going to get off into stuff we just said not to talk about. <laughs> um, let me see. I think for anyone who wants to start a business uh, or, you know, do blacksmithing and post it online, uh, in my experience, no one's going to shame you. Uh but you meet a lot of people that don't want to post what they do. They don't want to share what they do. Uh, even though they want to start a business. And obviously, if you don't tell someone that you're selling them something, that's not going to work. And so my two cents for the day is that what keeps people from wanting to or from being willing to share their stuff really boils down to pride in that, you know, I don't want to post it because someone might say something that I don't like. It's going to upset me. It's going to, you know hit the little chip on my shoulder because I like the thing. Uh, So my tip is be humble. If you make good stuff, share it. If it's good enough, then, you know, you can take criticism for what it is uh, or you can ignore it. (laughs) But uh, don't, don't let your, your ego be so big that you can't share what you do with other people. I'm going to dissect you on this one, bro. Okay. All right. So at the beginning of the show, we talked about how you posted stuff possibly too early. Mm -hmm. And I fully agree with that aspect. And I fully agree with Mm -hmm. what you're saying now as well. But they're two Mm -hmm. contradictory ideas. (laughs) Well, not 
Not necessarily. So my comment, I guess, was more aimed at people that their their stuff is at average market quality. You know, they are making stuff that's just as good as everyone else's, you know, even if it's just simple items. So there's no reason that you shouldn't share that. You know, it's not like it's macaroni art anymore. But uh, I think as people who are so invested in the things that we make, it can be very easy to what our, our fear of what people will say, even though it is perfectly fine stuff, our fear of what they'll say and our ego and pride not wanting to hear it uh, get in the way of that. So they aren't nece- they they definitely do sound contradictory though. I, I definitely see what you're right. saying. Right. Well, and and on the on the, and but I and I like I said I agree with you so much, but on the contradictory side of it, it's this aspect of like running a business and not wanting mm-hmm. to shoot yourself in the foot by putting out work that is going to yeah. soil your name perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something that I've been kind of keeping my eyes on a little bit with social media for a while now and watching how that works. And I've got come to the conclusion that maybe the best way to approach that is if you want to play the social media game and start putting your work out there, do it as you yourself, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Ethan, putting out cook i wanted to, and i was gonna say coach there sorry i know <laughs> I, I stopped myself and i was like don't 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 just skip it and i was like yeah okay yep. so anyways um but just put your stuff out there under your name mm-hmm. that you're just yeah. making stuff and once you get to that point where you're confident and that you're putting out good stuff that you, now you can start putting it out as a business. If you go on Let's... Instagram and look up the abstract blacksmith, you will notice I have two separate accounts there. I have one that is abstract blacksmith and I have another one that is the abstract blacksmith. Abstract blacksmith is the account everybody knows me as. The abstract blacksmith is only the work that I want to be posting towards what people will see as my business per se for okay. when I go forward with things on because mm-hmm. you want to be able to say go to my portfolio I don't want people yeah. going to abstract underscore blacksmith to see all the stupid fucking shit that I post <laughs> that you know stuff that I'm doing yeah. with my family and this and that I want to send them to a page where they can see the best work that I put out there, the stuff that I'm proud of that I know people are going to look at and be like, wow. Right. Or hopefully that's what you want. Right. (laughs) But on the same aspect, put that stuff out there that people are going to say, Hey, why did you do it like this? Or, Hey, I don't. That's how you get feedback and advice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Big thing is we're all our own worst critics and all your relatives and friends will be like no no it's great it's perfect you know don't listen to them. <laughs> um even today like it's if because when you ex trying to think about this if you accept your work as perfect it won't improve and so i think part of it is you know being 
critical on yourself and you're you're always going to be your worst critic you're always going to know and that doesn't mean that you can't put something out there but i think we are our best feedback we just don't like to listen to ourselves at times <laughs> yeah but it, it is all about feedback whether at least you know to determine where your your stuff and your skill is at and part of that can come from other people online part of that can come from your own thoughts and being honest with yourself uh, but as, as far as like posting stuff that you know is going to be related to your brand uh, there's probably some posts that i should go back and delete uh <laughs> but it, it does i am not great at the social media game uh like I, I try because that's what I need to do, and I definitely have gotten better. I can see that, but I know I have a long ways to go. Uh, but I, I always have that struggle when I make things, uh, just like severed, like we're talking about for market. It's like, man, should I post this at all? But it's like, well, I guess if I don't feed something to the Instagram machine, it's not going to show me to people anymore. <laughs> that's there's that too, man, and that's that's part of the game that you've got to play right almost it's a fucked up side of yeah. it because it almost pushes you to <laughs> post stuff that's irrelevant or not i could i could rant about shorts and reels oh and all this stuff for a long time but but i'll boil it down to this in that with the amount of content that they want they're really social medias are really tailoring themselves to reposting accounts yeah, and meme yeah, accounts. Yeah. Because those are the people that don't have to really put any work for, for what they're posting. But it's like there's some days that I don't post a reel and it's because people would be bored to tears by what I did today. Like no one would care. So why am I going to put that out? It's like making things by hand takes so much longer to make, to, you know, to grab a 30-second snippet of that that someone might actually be interested in. You know, that's <laughs> you'd be surprised. It, it's, yeah. You'd be surprised. I I've noticed that the videos of mine that seem to gain the most traction are process videos. Yeah. yeah. Or videos where I'm I, showing something type thing, right? Not just you know yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Not necessarily. My best video that I did was me just showing my fucking shop to somebody. Well, process videos do good. That's not what I'm necessarily what I'm saying, but it's like, you know, say I'm working on uh, an end table, and this end table might take me two weeks. Am I like, am I gonna post a reel of the day that I did nothing but wire wheel parts? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> you, you, well, you uh, could. You just have to find a creative way to make it seem interesting. A uh, way to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. I mean, I'll film all my wire wheeling from now on, compile it into one well, video. <laughs> lot, so one of the things that I've picked up is if you've got something like that, that's boring, chop it up a bunch so that people are seeing a bunch of different angles of, mm -hmm. of it type thing, you know, like, or if okay. you're wire, wire wheeling parts every day, Two seconds of one part, two seconds of another part, two seconds of another part, two seconds of you taking a sip of coffee, back to two seconds of wire wheeling apart, right? 
Yep, that's true. But anyways, dude, I think like we're at two hours now. It's usually the pinnacle of where we like to top our shows off. I've gone further <laughs> for whatever reason. We've gotten crazy at times, but I don't know if there's anything else you really want to chat about or not. Did we uh, miss anything or? Uh, I don't think so. This place is about to close. I think they're going to come tell me right. to get out. Well, let's uh, <laughs> let's get you out of there. Do you know how to do the Kurukuku? I have no idea. Kurukuku! Uh, am I supposed to respond to this like a yeah? Like you're a supposed harmony? to go ku ru ku 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 ku. Okay, just well, like that. Kuruku. Put some emphasis on the syllables. Okay, okay, go again. So ku ru ku 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 ku. Good day. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for sitting down with me, Ethan. Uh, Cook, change your last name, bro. That's yep. that fucked me up. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> My bad on that one, man. Sorry. Oh, you, sorry. Right. Dude, awesome young man. Seriously, I wish, wish I could have been like you are when I was 22. You've got potential, bro. A lot of potential. And I think you're going to go places, man. Well, thank you. I sure hope so. <laughs> I hope so too, man. And I'm going to keep my eye on you to make sure that you do. And if there's any time that you ever want to chat again, and hopefully we can cross paths at some point in our lives, dude, man, okay. it'd be super awesome. That would be awesome. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, talk to you soon then, I guess. Well, maybe not, but yeah, if we do, then awesome. <laughs> I'll send you all my wire wheeling videos. <laughs> Take off, you hoser. <laughs> all right. <laughs> everybody don't forget you can head on over to the and you can use that code what was that code again honey forge chat 10 that's the code yeah use that code forge chat 10 at checkout that'll save you guys 10 percent on orders 50 dollars or more you cannot i mean you cannot beat the products that dawson is putting out over at the check them out thank you <laughs>